from the studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette, this is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. We appreciate you joining us on the show this month. And if you have a question that you would like to make sure gets on this program, email that to ask at WBAA.org. And you can tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter as well. Well, uh, I want to start right into it because we've got a lot of stuff to cover. And I was thinking about a national story that I thought might dovetail with the Purdue 150th anniversary. And we're talking a lot these days in the news about election security, cybersecurity. Uh, and that is something that Purdue is thinking about uh, in terms of its, its Ideas Festival and its 150th. And I saw this story the other day that said that Florida was trying to test its election security. And so they put together these websites that they said were pretty close to what the state's election websites were like. And an 11-year-old in less than half an hour was able to change vote results on one of these websites. And I thought, surely Purdue, with some 18 to 22-year-olds who are thinking about this, and indeed some learned minds in cybersecurity, must be one of the groups of people trying to find ways to stop election hacking and things like that from happening, right? We do have people thinking uh, about that, working on every aspect of cybersecurity, and this one clearly um, would be a, a very serious one, an immediate one, if, uh, if in fact, these systems were vulnerable. Uh, no, I, I, I read experts from the field saying that that, um, uh, that, that uh, exercise that they ran was artificial and artificially easy for somebody to break into. But I have to say, having and who hasn't, uh, just being a voter or participating in the elective process, that uh, one has to worry about um, the possibility of uh, somebody, in a way no one could detect, making very, very large changes in, in voting outcomes. You know, the old-fashioned machines were obviously occasionally misused, but uh, uh, there it would happen on a smaller scale and be a little more visible. Uh, occasionally people got caught. So, yeah, we do have people from our Sirius, uh, which is the acronym uh, for our cybersecurity center, who are thinking about it. And it will definitely be a part of the Ideas Festival uh, in, a, in, in the broader context of the effect of, of uh, these new uh, uh, digital tools on our democracy. Uh, in, in various ways. wanted to get uh, to a question that was sent in by a listener since our last show. And the listener writes, uh, my question is if President Daniels can clarify what he meant by saying public service veterinarians, the I'm not sure if that's the right word, who, those who feed the entire globe, shouldn't deserve federal loan forgiveness when working for public service agencies. This person says this was a very insulting response to his veterinary students <clears throat> to whom he was just saying his relationship is so important to him. Uh, his vernacular and lack of professionalism in this response, this person writes, lost him much respect from the veterinary side of campus. I honestly wish he would engage with our faculty and students much more than she than he actually does. That's the that's the comment I got anyway. Yeah. Well, somebody made up that statement. I never made any such statement. Now I have questioned as on a on a broad basis uh, the the favorable or the preferential treatment of loans for people who go into the government or the nonprofit sector as opposed to people who um, go into the sector which creates the 
income and the taxes to pay for those other sectors. I don't under, I've never understood that being a good idea. I didn't pick on veterinarians. I didn't make any such statement. Someone has invented it uh, in a distortion of a more general observation that I made and that I do believe is right, that uh, uh, if we're going to start uh, giving this money away as opposed to loaning it, then uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't start uh, with uh, or stop with those who go into the um, non-productive sectors. We'll point out to our listeners, you can send your questions to ask at WBAA.org. You can tweet them as well at WBAA News on Twitter. Well, in, in sort of the same vein about uh, money, I wanted to ask you about a Washington Post article that you wrote uh, that got widely reprinted in quite a number of other papers. You said that Connecticut and other relatively rich states may increasingly ask states like Indiana to help subsidize them because they've got budget issues. And your article got some interesting responses. I wanted to ask you about a couple of them. One of them came from the editorial board of the Hartford Current, which, of course, is the largest newspaper in Connecticut. Um, And it pointed out that Connecticut, it said, has one of the highest per capita incomes in the country and regularly pays back more to the federal government than it receives. And then they go on to say that Indiana gets more from the feds than it sends to Washington. So they say, the Hartford Current editorial board does, that Indiana, they think, is being subsidized by the likes of Connecticut and has been for a long time. So let me have you address this. Even if Connecticut were to ask for subsidies, do you agree at all with their assertion that it's possible that there are states like Indiana that might be in Connecticut's debt in some way? No. First thing I'd tell you is that I got far more um, letters and emails and feedback from from people in Connecticut saying, yep, you're right. We put ourselves in a mess here. And we'll say that the editorial board here is is not arguing with you that Connecticut has financial problems, because it does. Okay. Uh, on this other question, I, I think it's really a non sequitur. I think it's, it's uh, not the right way to think about it. First of all, these data are very um, murky as to who subsidizes whom. For instance, the... Um, um, the analysis that uh, some people cited, maybe the current was one of them, ignores things like highway funding, where Indiana has always been a donor state. Connecticut is a, is a huge beneficiary, I think, I think primarily because of the huge subsidies the federal government gives to mass transit. Uh, so you probably weren't counting that. But, you know, regardless uh, how those federal monies move back and forth, it's not an argument um, – for a state like Indiana uh, or the, the, the majority of states who have tended to their fiscal knitting and uh, have not put themselves in unpayable uh, – situa- un- unmanageable situations with unpayable debts. Um, uh, you know, in Connecticut, they have uh, uh, something like 1,400 people with six-figure pensions. I don't think there's a single pension in public sector Indiana that that's that large. Um, uh, the last I looked, the top uh, recipient got $317,000 a year for not working. Um, the, um, uh, you know, it would not be an argument that says that because uh, at the federal level, somewhat more money goes out than comes in. Therefore, we're entitled to spend ourselves into bankruptcy and be bailed out. You know, how can that be an excuse for their having dug themselves the incredible hole they did? You know, I wasn't picking on Connecticut. I only mentioned them because of a, the, the central point I was trying to make is unlike, um, unlike uh, the Eurozone, 
we have a United States Senate, which uh, balances our House. Our House is strictly based on population. The big states can dominate. Our Senate protects the interest of individual uh, states and with two votes each. And uh, because of that feature, I don't see it being possible for the uh, bankrupt states to come um, plunder those who have been more careful. Um, and, and so uh, that was really the point I was making. And Connecticut came up because it was their delegates to the Constitutional Convention. I just found this interesting, Roger Sherman and Oliver Ellsworth, who conceived what was called the Connecticut Compromise, which helped there to be a nation in the first place by creating our bicameral legislature, one house population-based, one house treating states equally. I just thought that was an interesting historical irony. Uh, it, Connecticut is uh, in about as bad a shape as anybody, but they're far from alone, and there are much bigger states. We live next door to one um, who, uh, who, for all I know, could – could hit the wall first. You mentioned the Eurozone, and there was an interesting article that came from Bloomberg um, that talked about uh, – that, that addressed a little bit your your analysis of are the, the states that are in bad budget situations like in Italy or a Greece or the, station, the nations that have had budget crises in recent years. And the, um, the Bloomberg article made another interesting idea that I wanted you to, th- to think about. Um, it says uh, – and it makes this following point, and I'm quoting now. It says, it wouldn't be a stretch to frame the situation of GE leaving Connecticut, which you mentioned in your article, and Connecticut having high taxes to make up for a funding shortfall created by being a state that is a large net taxpayer to the federal government, GE looking to flee as a result, and then Georgia using tax money it gets from Connecticut as an incentive to entice GE to move from Connecticut to Georgia. What do you think of that? Not much. I mean, the amounts of money that can actually be um, could might somehow be detected as in the Georgia State General Fund or some fund there um, coming from any other state, let alone Connecticut, would be very, very small. You know, to the extent there uh, that uh, some states uh, have more receipts than tax payments, it's almost always, uh, almost entirely payments to individuals, not to the state government. It's payments to through the welfare system, the social security system. You know, Florida has lots of retirees, so they are a, they they get money, but it's not going to their state government. It's going to individual people there. That you know, the federal government now is almost two thirds money transfers. One of the biggest problems we have these these programs have gone gotten so big that they're squeezing out important. Um, um, discretionary spending like education and research and so forth, and that's where the money is. And and uh, so I, once again, even if it were a real phenomenon, I don't understand how it excuses profligacy of the kind that some of these states have practiced, where they have just uh, spent beyond their means, promised beyond their ability to pay. And today's politicians are going to hand that problem to their successors 
two or three terms down the line. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Email your questions to ask at WBAA.org or tweet them at WBAA News on Twitter. Uh, we talked last month about Purdue's trustees deciding what to do with the relationship with Papa John's and its founder, John Schneider. The trustees did decide to, to sever ties. Uh, and I wondered, how did the school finally decide that it did need to part ways? Because we did not, don't have to look any further than Ball State to find a, a school that chose a different path. I'll just let the trustees' very thoughtful statement stand um, for itself. And they mentioned uh, three reasons and very plainly. One was the distraction or detraction from the work of the center, if there was l- continuing disagreement about it. One was the possibility of, uh, they said, uh, counterproductive uh, division on the campus. Uh, again, a prolonged argument between people who had – and there are different views about this. And then uh, finally, uh, uh, avoiding the possibility of a completely – false inference that there's been any change in our policy about uh, uh, civil liberties and uh, racial tolerance and so forth. So those were their reasons, and they gave them very plainly, and uh, I'll let them speak for themselves. The trustees uh, said they would offer to give the $8 million back to the Family Foundation. Do you have any knowledge of whether, A, that offer has been officially extended from Purdue, and, and B, if, if so, whether it's been accepted? Yeah. Well, only one million of the eight had had actually been delivered, and it's uh, being returned. Okay. So it is, in fact, going to be taken back by the Schneider Family yeah. Foundation. Okay. On to other things. Uh, you were part of the, the Aspen Institute's Hearst Lecture this year, and you were asked there how higher ed could better prepare people for the working world. Uh, and you said too many professors are, in your world, your words, and I'm quoting you now, teaching their Ph.D. thesis, end quote, and not giving students skills that will transfer to the job force. And I was thinking about the difference between a school like Purdue that is so STEM-focused, and you made a point in in your part of the lecture that said more than 60% of the incoming freshmen are likely to be in part of some STEM discipline as they they maturate through the, the university. Is there a difference there between... That and and a smaller liberal arts college, were you at all poking at the liberal arts colleges of the world where you can study 19th century French poetry or something, which is not as likely to have a a, uh, real world outcome for your job prospects as mechanical engineering would? No, I think it's a it's an observation many people have made. I wasn't and it can happen on a campus like ours, just as it does at, at smaller schools. And. Uh, you know, I'm strongly in favor of studies like 19th century French poetry. I, if you go look in the catalogs, however, of almost any university, including this one, you will find uh, courses far more narrow than that. And, you know, a student's only got so many uh, years, course, uh, courses and, and, and uh, days to spend at this uh, splendid opportunity of higher education and – um, I just think it's a shame when many of them miss big expanses of learning, broad uh, uh, survey courses in great literature, in history, uh, in uh, philosophy maybe. And, uh, you know, a, a student who has seen the um, 
broad expanses of of uh, of the human learning on uh, um, which from which we benefit now. I think then it's terrific if they want to delve more deeply, much more narrowly. This is what a lot of graduates study and and ultimately professional uh, uh, academic people do. Do you think it should be left to graduate or other advanced studies? Should it be available to those students who have decided that they want to specialize rather than taking up some portion of the course catalog for, for undergraduates? I just think that... Uh, that um, it's a uh, a missed opportunity. Uh, I'll be visiting with our new freshmen uh, this afternoon, or the day we're doing this taping. And as I have the last two or three years, I'll really in in the in the space of I don't know three or four minutes that I talk to them, I will devote a piece of that time to pitching the liberal arts and urging them not to miss this chance to read the greatest things that have been said and study the greatest lives that have been led. And um, um, I just think it's a missed opportunity if they skip over all that and then uh, only see a little tiny sliver that is being taught primarily because it's of intense interest to to a faculty member. And I uh, – so that, that that's all. I guess what I'm asking is do you think there would be any room for – the changing of the courses that are offered at Purdue so that the greatest good can be done for the greatest number and you can focus some of these professors who might be teaching these very, very specific courses on teaching more surveys so that more people get mm-hmm. uh, you know, access to the great literature and the like. There's a strong school of thought across higher ed that, um, that it was um, unfortunate when Schools moved away from so-called core curriculum, core curricula, which were genuinely core. We have one here, but it has 400 and some courses in it. And um, that uh, there was a a value in students having, first of all, a good grounding in in the uh, fundamentals. And just so our listeners know, we're talking about – Every student has to take the same 10, 12 courses or something. Right. Uh, and also giving more common experience to students uh, was, was sometimes thought to be one of the values of that. Um, so I'm not necessarily calling for that. We, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of our College of Liberal Arts. It has created a new opportunity, which is oversubscribed this, this uh, first full year called Cornerstone, in which students will earn a – a certificate or a badge or at least an, an emblem of their study. They may be majoring in something different, but by en- en- enrolling in Cornerstone, they will study together a certain um, body of, uh, of, of uh, great works and and um, uh, I would call it more traditional liberal arts. So I think that's a big step forward, and I certainly uh, uh, out trying to be a marketer for the, the college's uh, initiative in that way. And maybe there are other things we can do to uh, to broaden it. But when I see, as I have in in recent years, that a very very small percentage of our students, by the time they graduate, took even one history course, one great literature course, one philosophy course, maybe economics. I just think it's it's uh, it's too bad. Uh, I think I think that the the sort of rounded education we'd like to to uh, provide them, uh, maybe we haven't. I wonder, and I've never asked you this, do you think there is any argument for there being a sort of fundamental difference between a student that would prioritize 
a university like Purdue, large, STEM-focused, versus an Oberlin or a Kenyon or a Carleton, some of the elite, small, private liberal arts schools, do you think there are, are, are possibilities that one type of student will flourish much more likely in one environment versus the other? Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the great virtues of our this finest network of higher ed institutions in the world is its variety, and uh, uh, that. But that doesn't mean that someone who comes to a school like ours wouldn't serve herself or himself well to uh, 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 to, to absorb uh, as much as uh, calendar permits of the greatest thought uh, that's preceded us. And um, I'll tell you this, this is not only, I think, uh, a great preparation for life in general, but vocationally it has value to, we're told over and over by even the most technological businesses that recruit on our campus, the Apples, the SpaceXs, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the Facebooks, that uh, they really prize uh, new talent that has technological skills and preparation, but also um, a sense a, a good uh, comes equipped with the so-called soft skills of communication, understanding the context of the of the new science they may be contributing to, and so um, uh, I'm for it not really for utilitarian reasons, but it has some. We've got a few more minutes with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels on this Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with him. Send your questions for our next show to ask at WBAA.org. You've talked a lot about the fact this year's incoming freshman class is large. There have been dorm overcrowding problems in recent years. Stands to reason that might happen again this year? It would have without some terrific work by our uh, by our housing uh, people, uh, there is no waiting list uh, today. As the students move in, every every freshman will be accommodated uh, on campus. They had to do some imaginative things. We took some housing that uh, had historically been mainly graduate students, and it'll have a lot of undergrads in it. They spent a lot of time and money this summer uh, cleaning, painting, fixing new furniture, things like that, to make these uh, uh, really attractive. Um, we. Uh, had to do things uh, like uh, ask our resident advisors who live in and uh, in exchange for free uh, 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 rent and so forth uh, to double up, which is actually the the common practice across higher ed. But up until this year, um, many or, or most of ours have been able to have a single room. So um, we had to take a few steps like that. Once again. This is a compounding of two really positive developments. One is more interest in, in, in a surprising number of students saying yes to our offer this year, so more students than we'd expected, and a concerted effort, that you'll recall, over the last few years to encourage students to live on campus including upperclassmen. Well, and last year, people will recall that the university had to rent some off-campus yep. apartments and things like that to accommodate all the people. So um, uh, these things... Uh, uh, these, these are positive uh, developments, and uh, um, this year I think our folks did an especially good job of being prepared for what happened, which was uh, more students and a higher percentage of students, including sophomores and juniors and so forth, wanting to live on. But uh, I think we'll uh, I think we'll be fine, and um, 
again, I really want to compliment the terrific work of uh, of the people leading that group. A couple more quick topics in our last five minutes or so on the program this month. There's been a lot of talk in corporate America about straws and other cause celebs like banning those or plastic bags or huge soft drinks. And I wondered if any of that has trickled down to Purdue, because, of course, you've got relationships with a lot of, you know, large soft drink companies and other and other uh, businesses like that that have some interest in these different areas, uh, plenty of straws and large cups and plastic bags on the Purdue campus. Has this become a discussion around here of whether the school will do anything in these areas? Honestly, no, but we can have that discussion. We're always looking for ways to uh, to uh, improve what we do or to contribute to a more sustainable environment. I don't know whether this is one or not. You know, uh, uh, I've because I uh, knew you were going to ask the question. I did a little digging. There, there are some interesting findings. I mean, ninety percent of this plastic in the ocean comes from Asia and Africa. Um, uh, plastics. Uh, for instance, bags uh, consume or take 70% less energy to produce. You have to use a paper bag way over 100 times before it's as energy efficient or green as a plastic one is. And a lot of people don't know these things. There's a degree of feel-goodism in some proposals. I'm not saying this is one. You have to look at the facts. But uh, uh, we're perfectly willing to make adjustments that that, – uh, particularly those that make some meaningful contribution. And uh, we've got a ways to go. We're still, I don't think we're nearly as energy efficient on our campus as we ought to be. Some of that's because of older structures. But um, th- some of that is because of uh, antiquated practices. We hadn't been metering our buildings. So people used energy in somewhat indiscriminately. Uh, they weren't getting a bill or they weren't even being told how much they were um, consuming. And so uh, you won't find a place more committed to uh, the the agenda of so-called sustainability. But, uh, you know, you want to look at each proposal on its own merits. I'm told that um, uh, plastic straws, for instance, are far less often implicated in uh, choking or safety problems than soggy paper. And a couple other things. Um I wanted to ask, now that they've had a little bit of time to set in, have you noticed any impact from the presidential administration's tariffs? Because obviously you're going to be doing things like buying steel for new buildings and mm-hmm. such, and you've got a lot of interest in agriculture. Uh, not to my knowledge, but, you know, if, they, if they're if they large enough and last long enough, then everybody who consumes anything is going to feel it somehow. And uh, our, I don't need to... Um, spout off about it particularly, but many of our economists, especially our ag- agricultural economists uh, and trade experts have already pointed out the many downsides of uh, of some of these policies. So uh, um, let's hope that um, these uh, disputes uh, resolve themselves or uh, before they begin to impose big costs on anybody, uh, including our university. Speaking of changes made by the administration, I wondered if the university, which has been in the midst of a big fundraising campaign, has thought about how it's going to message when, at the start of next year, there are going to be quite a number of Americans, perhaps people who might be donors to Purdue, will get larger tax returns and maybe have some more disposable income coming back to them from the federal government Mm -hmm. than they've had. Have you thought about whether Purdue is going to 
to message around that to try to help get some of that money back into higher ed? Oh, I, you, the phenomenon you're talking about is probably real. There, there will be, and there is already more disposable income left in people's pockets through those through those policies. I think our messaging, though, will simply remain as affirmative as it can be um, uh, about the university, the value we think it's bringing, particularly about our efforts to keep it accessible and affordable to students. These are the things I think our donors are responding to uh, right now. And if they have a little more wherewithal, maybe they'll respond a little more generously. Uh, It's an interesting question, but uh, I don't think we'll um, bring it up. I think we've got enough good arguments without it. All right. Well, that's all the time we've got. Thanks, as always, for your time, and uh, have a good beginning to the academic year. We hope to. Thanks. This has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Remember, you can add your questions to these programs by emailing them to ask at WBAA.org. Tweet them as well at WBAA News on Twitter. And all of these shows are archived at WBAA.org. You may be able to stream them from your local station's website as well. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Have a good rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960, and featuring the fifth edition of Creating Moments of Joy Along the Alzheimer's Journey, now available. More at thepress.purdue.edu.